Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will continue our discussion on the impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic with AAF President Douglas Holtzagen. Doug, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me back, Kyle. So we've got a lot to talk about today, so let's jump right into it. Um, I want to start with the fact that you've testified before Congress three times in the past week, and you're testifying before another Senate committee tomorrow. We're recording on Wednesday, so that'll be Thursday. Um, first, as a side, what's it like testifying in front of Congress? I mean, you've done this a hundred times, but do you have like some sort of ritual you go through before you go through all this? Um, well, uh, number one, you write written testimony, and I view written testimony as uh, basically the ticket you need to get in. You got to do that. So you turn it in. It doesn't have to be everything you know about something. And it certainly doesn't have to be what you what you want to say most dearly. So you, you write the testimony. Um, that's the place to put lots of facts that you need, think need to be in there, stuff like that. Then when I show up, I think it's very important to um, be yourself. I can't read the written opening statement where people, you take five minutes and it's to the last second. I take some note cards and I write out an outline of what I'd like to say. I had three points to make. This is what they are. So uh, I testified at the Senate Banking Committee about these special places the Federal Reserve is uh, setting up to lend to Main Street businesses and to municipalities. And uh, the, the testimony is this. Um, we have seen the Federal Reserve move quickly on an enormously large scale. We have seen the U.S. Treasury move quickly on a large scale with the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, and now we're seeing the Treasury and the Federal Reserve get nothing done for two months. WTF. That's it. I mean, that's the testimony. So I, in, in more gracious terms, that's what I had to say in my opening, right? And um, and, and then uh, you get their attention, right? If you, if you give them something new that they're like, oh, okay, you got to think about that. I think it's important. You want to engage them. It's a, it's a teaching opportunity. And I think it's more important to explain to members how you think about something than your bottom line, go do X. Because you, you want them to face the similar situation in the future and be equipped for it, things like that. So, you know, um, that's how I think about testifying. And yeah. um, by and large, my experiences testifying have been favorable. I, you know, I feel like, um, you know, uh, you, you get a, a, a little bit of canned speeches, but you get some some interaction. And then sometimes you get in an issue, you know, like um, under Obama's the Affordable Care Act, under it's the $15 minimum wage, where it's just, a huge partisan divide, and and they spend the entire hearing screaming at each other with you as a prop, and that's less that's less fun. Fair enough. Well, you certainly look like um, you belong up there and make it look easy. Well, um, you. As you've already uh, sort of alluded to, all these hearings um, have been related to the COVID nineteen pandemic and the policy response to it. What were some of the big takeaways from these hearings? You already mentioned a little bit about the banking committee, but by and large, what were some of your takeaways? Um, uh, first one was the Ways and Means Committee. So that was the very first uh, committee hearing held by virtual means in, in the history of the House of Representatives. So a small piece of history. Um, the question was impact of the COVID-19 uh, virus uh, illness and the pandemic on communities of color. And there the data speak for themselves. There's just been an enormous disproportionate impact in terms of health outcomes and in terms of economic outcomes uh, on, on racial minorities. It, you know, so the unemployment rate among whites went up, but it went up more among Asians, more among Hispanics, 
Um, it, it didn't go up more among blacks, but that's because most of them were working in frontline jobs. Their health outcomes are, are considerably worse. And so there's no question you have um, uh, these disparities. So that, that gets to the next question, which is what do you do? And my answer is it is absolutely necessary to undo the recent increase in the disparities that came from the recession associated with the pandemic. So get back to, to full employment as fast as possible. But that's not going to be sufficient, right? That's not going to be enough to take care of the, the underlying problems, which are rooted in education and, and sort of the access to, to um, better jobs that comes with that. Mm-hmm. So that, that, was, that was that one. The Senate Banking Committee was narrowly on, you know, what about the these blending uh, efforts by the Fed, backed by the Treasury? What's going on? What do you think? I think it's a missed opportunity. I'm mystified, to, to be honest. Most of the time uh, we spent sort of discussing ways it might be made more effective. Today was the budget committee, so this is a wide-ranging uh, discussion. The biggest thing being, you know, these are budget guys, so they look at a $2.3 trillion CARES Act or, you know, the, the deficit being projected at $4 trillion this year, and their hair is on fire. And so my job is to say to them, this is an historically large downturn. We've talked about this. All, all of the numbers are 10 times anything we've seen before. So it's not surprising that the response is correspondingly large. That, that Don't panic about that. Also, don't spend any money you don't need to. Focus carefully on the, the crisis and, and don't suffer mission drift. But know that, roll the clock forward, whatever the number of years is, three, four, five, uh, you will be faced with a very difficult job which in the 21st century, Congress has failed to accomplish, which is to stabilize the growth from the debt, and you will do it from a position of much higher national debt because of the crisis. So, you know, good news is this response is appropriate. Bad news is you have a lot of work left. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you've, you've uh, spoken to more members of Congress this past week than most reporters have. Um, what is the mood among law- lawmakers? Is there a sense that they're do you get the sense that there's an appetite for a large economic stimulus bill? What are you starting to hear? Well, there's an enormous disparity. As usual, there's there's a huge range of views. Um, you know, Congress is full of, uh, as as society is, uh, people who think differently. Some people are very emotional thinkers. They're they're very very upset about what's going on out there, and so something has to be done. Some are very analytical thinkers. Like, okay, cares act well designed to not. What did we get? What did we not get? Okay, next steps. What do we do? Um, some are fundamentally politically driven. Like, my guys are good. I don't have to worry about anything. Or my, my constituents will not stop calling, this is a disaster. What do we need to do? So you get a mixture of those those sort of impulses coming through. And, you know, as always, if you want to give good advice, first understand what they're trying to accomplish. Are you trying to accomplish a, a policy design? Mm-hmm. Are you trying to placate someone politically? just want to feel better about what's going on. You know, there are a lot of different things. Um, so that's what's going on up there. And, and uh, some people are, you know, sort of so upset. Um, and others, you know, are, are genuinely concerned. They're, they're not less upset by the situation, but they're, they're more interested in sort of the mechanics of fixing things. Got it. Again, we've talked a little bit about what you, you know, what you've testified on. Um, but Tuesday, you talked about, you know, the dearth of spending under the Title IV of the CARES Act. Does the fact that there's so much CARES Act money left to spend mean that we should be thinking about another package quite yet? I, I think the key is that the Congress gave a half a trillion dollars to the Treasury and said, 
use the Federal Reserve, right? The, the Treasury has to uh, direct the Federal Reserve to create a lender of last resort facility. So use the Federal Reserve to set up a so-called 13-3, that's the, the section of their charter this comes from, uh, facility to be the lender of last resort to Main Street businesses, non-financial businesses, and municipalities. So do that. Here's a half a trillion dollars that you can effectively lose in, in, in um, uh, undertaking that enterprise. So um, to a slight complication, the Federal Reserve and its charter can't set up a lending facility that loses money. It's not allowed to just go out and make bad loans. So their reflex always is to run a tight ship, make sure this thing's going to break even. If it even, it does that by not lending to the most risky borrowers, charging higher interest rates, bigger origination fees, all the places you sort of get money in the deal. And that's a mistake from the point of view of the economy. That's that's in, in the moment exactly the mistake we don't want to make, which is to worry so much about the budget in this in this lending facility that you miss the economy. You want to get the money out the door, and if you lose some, the, the Treasury should be sticking enough money in there to cover those losses so that the Fed's not worried. That's not happening for whatever reason. So the fact that that money's unspent uh, doesn't mean go get another bill. It says we targeted some things, and it hasn't happened. Make it happen so that you don't have to go do it in another bill. There's no point doing it twice. Do it once and get it to work. So is this something that can be fixed on the administrative side or the administration side, or does Congress have to step in and fix I, this? I think the Treasury and the Fed can do this by themselves. I, I'm a bit mystified as to why it continues at this point. Um, you know, there's always the threat of Congress legislating it. So, you know, maybe maybe that's a good threat and sort of get this thing going. Okay. Um, so I just want to turn to something that I, you know, I've been tuning into your hearings, uh, listening to some of the questions you were getting. Um, and you discussed um, the outsized impact that COVID-19 has had on minority communities, as well as the fact that we should, you know, not continue the blanket spending approach of the CARES Act. What is a better approach going forward? And how um, how can policymakers target some of the aid um, to those who need it the most? Uh, so, the strategy, in the initial strategy, which I endorsed and we've talked about it on these podcasts, is let's uh, do suspended animation for a couple of months. Let's wrap uh, both the non-financial businesses and the financial sector in liquidity from the Fed and money from the CARES Act. Keep the workers attached to their firms. Keep the firms intact. And when we get to the other side, restart. Um, and that sort of envisioned the peak of this as being pretty short and now we're there and it seems like we have a more uh, pronounced uh, and extended uh, fight with this virus. So going forward, it can't be the same strategy. That strategy said, let's hide from the virus and use the cash to do it. Now we're going to have to somehow learn to run the economy in the presence of the virus. We're going to have to essentially protect economic transactions, whether they're going to work, going to the store, whatever it might be, production, sales from the impact of the virus and and that's a different strategy so that that's a you know let's think about a goal okay we're going to open production facilities do we want to have ppe as the first line of defense do we want to rework them so people are you know more socially distanced or we have testing on site you know how are we going to do all that stuff businesses are worried about their liability for infection so what are we going to do about that um those are all different kinds of policies than we did with cares which is just write big checks so i think we're out of the right big checks stage. Um, it's also true that, um, you know, th this is about 
growth and 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 transformation of the economy. And so some we think some of the the places are unlikely to look the same in the future. I don't want to be in the theater industry. I'm not sure I want to be in the ca- casino business. You know, there are a bunch of things that probably are going to operate differently on a smaller scale, employ fewer people. So what can we do to sort of support workers as the economy transforms? That'll be a key issue, I think. Okay. I'd like to turn to the current economic situation. Um, we have job numbers coming out on Friday. Last month, obviously, they were less than good. Where are we this month relative to last month? So we lost uh, 20 million jobs in April. That was the recorded decline in payroll employment. Um, I, I don't expect 20 million more. I, I don't know whether I should expect 2.7 as the, the private sector ADP estimate was this morning, or whether I should expect 5.7. Um, but, but I think 2.7 seems low to me. Um, we do know that the continuing claims for unemployment insurance declined for the first time. So we have new people still coming in saying, I need unemployment insurance. But the number of people on it from the past dipped down a little bit. That means there is some hiring going on out there. So we're getting back to the situation. Instead of just seeing wholesale layoffs, wholesale uh, job loss, we're getting a combination of job losses here, job gains there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's promising. The question is, what will they net out at? I'm just not sure. I'm pretty sure they're going to net out negative. I just know how big. Mm-hmm. So is, is some of that like furloughed people coming back well, on the payroll? We hope. I mean, of the 20 million, 18 million were identified as temporary layoffs. Um, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic that they're going to literally turn out to be that. But there are a lot of people out there who expected to come back. And, you know, with um, you know some of the states sort of uh, dropping their lockdowns and, and sort of more commerce going on, you would expect them to be the first to go back. Gotcha. Um, and then do you anticipate learning anything new from Friday's jobs numbers? Uh, I think we'll learn um, more about the distribution across industries, right? So when we get the jobs report every uh, month, uh, they do a survey of, uh, of uh, establishments and you're asked to identify what industry you're in and how many people we have on payroll. So we can track sort of by industry what's going on. You know, we saw an enormous concentration of job losses in leisure and hospitality in that April report. That's not surprising. I mean, the hotels and all that stuff shut down. I'm interested in seeing what that distribution looks like now. Are we getting, having more uniform job losses, which just reflect a slowdown, or are we still seeing some pockets of the economy just getting decimated? Got it. Well, we'll have to watch out for Gordon's uh, guesstimate. Yes. And then, of course, the U6, where he will give us his uh, insight and analysis on uh, Friday morning. We will also find out um, more information about the disparate impact because we get unemployment rates by um, uh, racial backgrounds. And, you know, we know that there are going to be some uh, big disparities across not just that, but across education. Like without fail, the monthly judge for is the best advertisement for a college education that you can get because the difference between the, the sort of the circumstances of someone with a college degree or more versus someone with less than a high school degree are just dramatic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so beyond the job numbers, um, uh, you know, we talked about this last week. The stocks are up while consumer confidence is down. Again, that's looking at short-term and long-term parts of the economy. Um, but what other indicators are you are you watching? In, in addition to that, that's true. We said talked about it last week, but it's also important to, to remember that the stock market prices a subset of, of the economy. It prices those corporations that have uh, that are publicly traded. And so it's really pricing the profitability of 
that part of the corporate sector. It's not pricing the enormous number of not-for-profits like AAF or performing arts centers or Red Crosses or relief organizations. It's not pricing a lot of small businesses who don't issue stock and aren't publicly traded. So it's pricing something that isn't the whole economy. And it's always a mistake to say, oh, that's 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 what's going on. It's, it, it's missing big chunks. Um, in terms of the things I'm, I'm looking for, uh, you always uh, hear how much we have to send checks to people to get them to spend. So any indicators of spending, I think, are, are going to be important. We got the personal income and, and uh, outweighs uh, data for April last Friday, so early in, in May, late in May, sorry. Um, and th it showed this remarkable um, uh, statistic. Personal income, disposable personal income, net of taxes, grew by $2.1 trillion at an annual rate in the month of April in, because transfers from the government grew at a rate of $3 trillion. So the CARES Act worked for households. I mean, we are plowing the money in there, checks, unemployment insurance, bonuses, all of that. The saving rate jumped to 33%. So they're tucking the money away. So we have successfully sort of provided a foundation for households to, to survive. So I want to see in the, in the next data when they actually start spending, right? The saving rate went up to 33%. They didn't spend it. Are they going to start spending? That's, that's the next thing you start looking for. Okay. So on another note, we seem to be in a moment of real uh, of deregul a lot of deregulation happening. Um, AAF's regulatory policy team is tracking all of the regulatory changes that are happening during the pandemic. Um, and uh, Dan Bosch, the director of um, regulatory policy at AAF, tweeted out that you know we've passed 700 new regulatory actions during this period. Wow. What have you been seeing on this regulatory front, and what has stood out to you? I think what's really jumped out to me is the fact that, you know, we we did uh, emergency waivers of regulations for for really two reasons. You know, one is um, to improve the the, the potential to uh, uh, run the economy in the face of the pandemic. Um, I, I think we knew from the previous work uh, that the regulatory folks have done that deregulation has had a significant impact on economic growth. That was part of the story of the run up uh, to the pandemic was the the sustained success of the Trump administration in stopping the growth of the regulatory state, in some cases turning it negative. And that was a just night and day difference from the Obama administration, where they you know, had a new major regulation that cost more than $100 million uh, at the average rate of 1.1 per day every day for eight years. It was just an enormous regulatory explosion. So that part, I think we knew, but we're seeing it again. They're, they're running that playbook aggressively. The real lesson to me was our healthcare sector is so overregulated that it can't walk and chew gum at the same time. It was incapable of dealing with COVID-19 patients and the regular patients. It had to sort of stop seeing the latter to deal with the former. And in the, in the emergency, they started waiving everything they could think of over at HHS. And it had a dramatic impact on the ability of the healthcare sector to meet the needs of people. And so I think that's a big lesson. The, the poster child for this is telehealth, which had been advertised as something we were going to do someday, eventually. And in the crisis, we did it. They said, here, um, we'll pay the same for a telehealth visit as an office visit. Pretty simple. That money does matter. Um, and you don't have to go to a special location to do telehealth. Well, that was always kind of crazy. You have to go somewhere. Go to the doctor's office. You don't go to a, a booth and do telehealth. Mm -hmm. And then they said, you can use commercially available um uh, applications like Zoom or FaceTime or, 
or any of those things to do the telehealth. And if there's some inadvertent disclosure of, of health information, we're not going to hold everybody liable. Well, that was all it took. Um, I, for example, had two telehealth um, appointments during the course of this. Lots of people had telehealth appointments. And I think that that's a lesson about our healthcare set. Uh, HHS cannot by itself make that permanent, but Congress should think about doing that, sort of making it easier to tell health, taking advantage of this. Yeah, I've seen uh, a couple of times this commercial on, on TV where it's basically saying all these doctors talking about how they're doing their work over teams and meeting with, with patients over teams, um, which I think is obviously to the, to the uh, benefit. It, it's not the end all and be all. I, I don't think it's, it's not a replacement for the current approach, but there are situations in which it's extremely helpful, right? If, if the main goal of the visit is to make sure that someone is staying on their, their meds, for example, make sure they're, they're, they're hitting their blood pressure medicines, they're doing their um, uh, other um, weekly and monthly things, that, then, that, then the telehealth visit is perfect for that. If it's a new diagnosis, I can understand why a doctor would like to have the person in the office. That, that's a different issue. Okay. Well, I want to cover one final topic with you before before we, we leave. A little bit more big picture um, and talk about the budget. Um, you've argued before that it doesn't make sense to hurt the economy for the sake of the budget in this current pandemic. Right. In, in other words, that we should spend what's necessary to save the economy. When do lawmakers need to start thinking about the state of the budget again? Well, this came up, this came up uh, in the hearing. And so uh, some people like... Um, numerical metrics, like we get the unemployment rate back to five or less, or we get the growth rate of the economy to two and a half or more or something. I, I, I'm not a big fan of, of those kinds of approaches because what they're trying to do is bypass Congress and take politics out of it. But that's silly. You can, you can never take politics out of it. And trying to bypass Congress is, is, is a, an act of utility. So my answer in, in the hearing was, you should turn to the, the long-term problem of stabilizing the debt the moment you go to a town hall and the question isn't, how do I get a job and how am I going to make my rent payment? But instead is, hey, what have you guys been up to up there? Like, what are you doing? Why, why do we elect you? Um, and that will happen. Like, you know, this, this crisis, people are consumed with the health and the economic consequences. But when, it, when we get past that, it's time for Congress to get very serious. Now, that doesn't mean they immediately, you know, balance the budget or something, but, but you pass legislation that in the years to come, put it on a trajectory to get it um, stabilized. And that's the important thing. And the thing I'd emphasize about that is we've, in the 21st century, Congress has never done that. We've had, the, we've had a, an unsustainable fiscal trajectory for the entire 21st century, and Congress has never been able to get it together to stabilize it. And now we've had all of this spending and a higher level of debt, and we're gonna have to ask them to do that. It's just a hard job. And so they're, they're going to have to get serious. Gotcha. Well, Doug, thank you for taking the time. I know you're probably tired from your <laughs> marathon hearings yesterday, today, and then one tomorrow again. So thanks again for taking the time. Happy to do it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.